clones, artificial intelligence, and the science of shame. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And man, do we have some great questions this week. I also want to let you know that uh, we just released a 20th episode of the Liturgist Podcast on LGBTQ equality and the church. Lots of people downloaded it. It was a wonderful episode. Highly recommend you check it out. But for now, let's get it started. Hi, Science Mike. Uh, this, uh, I'd like to know uh, do clone and artificial intelligence have a soul? Oh, thanks a lot. Well, good news. The clones part is easy. <laughs> uh, if, if people have souls, clones have souls. Pretty simple. Uh, to our knowledge, has never been a human clone. However, we have a natural equivalent of a human clone, which is an identical twin. A clone is nothing but a separate organism created from the same DNA. It's an identical twin born at another time, uh, effectively. Now, cloning, uh, when we've done sheep or other large mammals, uh, where you've cloned that DNA from an adult animal, it does tend to have some additional entropy attached to it, and the clones uh, don't have quite the same quality of life as the original copy. They're still indistinguishable life. And I have no problem saying that a human clone would have the same qualities of soulness as an actual human. Now, AI is a tougher question because an artificial intelligence would be different in pretty dramatic ways from a natural intelligence. And uh, to ask if an AI has a soul, we have to ask, well, what's a soul in the first place? When people say we have a soul, are you talking about sort of an immaterial part of us, a spirit, some immortal, unseen component of humanity? Or are you talking about the essential essence of something to get to the soul of the matter? Is the soul what is unique about you? Religious people tend to view souls as an immaterial part uh, of a person, perhaps even as the origin of consciousness. Non-religious persons, especially science-minded folks, tend to think of the soul merely as, you know, the unique qualities of a given person or thing. How do we know that people have souls at all? Scientifically, we don't. No one's ever measured or captured a soul in any way. There is some debate in philosophical and even the, the neurological world about whether humans actually have, you know, even free will. We've covered that on a previous show. I'm not going to jump down that rabbit hole today. You can see it in the show notes if you're interested in a deeper discussion on free will. Um, But regardless, we can't prove or measure human souls. We can measure the fact that humans appear to have consciousness, that they're sentient and self-aware, and that from that emerges something that other humans recognize as interesting and unique and curious and that the specific phenomena behind consciousness and awareness are not fully known or well understood in science today. Um, 
Now, let's talk about AI. There's a few different ways uh, you could come up with an artificial intelligence. One is um, by emulating consciousness. And consciousness, in one measure, can be defined as the ability of a given feedback loop to respond to the environment, working off the um, insights of the physicist Michio Kaiku here, and he surmised that on some level a thermostat is conscious because it can become aware of its environment and respond to it. In doing so, it can change the environment and then respond to that change, hence a feedback loop. And in this model, human consciousness is an especially elaborate set of hundreds of thousands of neurofeedback loops that coalesce to create our consciousness. Well, we already have digital systems, computer systems, that have feedback loops and some form of limited consciousness. There's banks of computers right now that are aware of the stock market, that uh, respond to changes that they create in the stock market, and even have some very primitive forms of uh, selection pressure on their algorithms to advance. That's pretty amazing stuff. You can imagine that Uh, If you allow these symbolic loops to amplify, you could ultimately arrive at some form of consciousness and possibly, therefore, some form of a soul. Uh, You could also imagine that the human brain is composed of matter that obeys rules, neurons and synapses. And if you kind of ladder down from the biology, then molecules and chemicals. And if you ladder down from that, atoms, ladder down further, subatomic particles, all these things are deterministic and behave according to rules, some of which at the quantum level we don't understand all that well. For that matter, let's be honest, uh, there's a lot that we're pretty confused about at the neurological level as well. But regardless, theoretically, one can create an emulation in software of all those real neurological parts. And in fact, this has been done at a very primitive level when researchers encoded a worm's brain as a software application and with no programming, put it into a robot, and that robot immediately exhibited some environmental awareness, the ability to sense when something was in front of it and try to navigate around it. That is phenomenal. It's a basic form of neural emulation in a machine. So you could argue that uh, that little robot was approaching a worm's level of consciousness. Now, I don't hear a lot of people arguing that worms have souls, except maybe Buddhists and uh, you know maybe some other animistic faiths. But if computers keep getting faster, we'll be able to build more and more elaborate models of brains within them. At some point, you can imagine, and Ray Kurzweil certainly does in his singularity theory, uh, that at some point that you have enough emulation to make something human-level aware. Now, would that have a soul? I think if we have souls, uh, something like that would too. It would be gifted with an awareness of self. And in fact, uh, Alan Turing came up with a test to surmise if a machine was intelligent enough. It's called the Turing test. And basically, if a computer can pass for a human in a conversation, we have to assume that computer has a human-level self-awareness. And I think, therefore, a soul. Now, again, I'm not completely sold that humans have souls. I know that comes funny from someone who follows Jesus, believes in God. This is one of those places where my faith and my science don't line up all too well, and I hold things in tension. But I think, yeah, clones, if people have souls, 
clones definitely have souls. If we can ever create a system that exhibits human-level conversation ability, if we ever create a system with a similar level of feedback loops and sophistication, even if it's not necessarily all that conversational, if we've got souls, I think that system would as well. Really interesting question. Thank you. Hey, Mike, this is Brad. Uh, Question. Why is it that we as a uh, human species are so quick to judge other human beings? And how has that benefited us? And how has that uh, worked against us? And then maybe a follow-up question. How closely related is this to what we would call intuition? How does intuition work? And does it work? Or are we just always off? Thanks, man. Well, the voice you just heard was my good friend, Bradley Grennan. So I'm going to disclose he's a really close friend, but I'm also going to let you know that I don't actually pick the questions that go on the show. Uh, my, uh, my intern, Haley, picks the questions that go out for the poll, and then the people that contribute to the program on Patreon are the ones that pick the questions that make it onto the air. So there's no inside baseball happening here. If that term even makes sense, I don't know anything about baseball. Uh, But it is a good question, and I'm glad uh, that even though it was submitted quite a while ago, it finally made it on the show. Uh, Humans are natural judging machines, and this is for several reasons. We are social primates. We are, in fact, the most social primate based on our large prefrontal cortex, large neocortex relative to the rest of our brain volume. Uh, we're able to exist in larger social groups than any other primate. Chimps and bonobos, of course, come closest. Uh, They can have troops of up to about 50 individuals, but humans can easily scale to 150 friends, right? You have pretty large groups of individuals. Of course, can humans can then, through something called Dunbar's number, you know, go to 500 individuals, 1,500, and then, you know, considerably less as the number of uh, close friends you can have. But... Because we're a social animal and our our brains developed in that climate, it is important for us to decide quickly who's in the tribe and who isn't. Because someone outside of our tribe can be dangerous pre-civilization, especially in an environment of limited resources where we are competing for foraging resources, for water, and for a limited game with other bands of humans you got to judge if someone's in your tribe or not. You've also got to judge whether someone is sticking to the tribal code, the rules. And we had to do that before we had language. So you can imagine um, physical repercussions to a failure to comply with the rules of the tribe, which were trained to children, was vital to survival. Also, knowing your social standing and the social standing of others is something that human beings devote incredible neurological energy to. Because to be higher in social standing is to have a better chance at mating, securing resources for your children, and to fall too low in social standing is to risk exile, as is egregious infractions against the tribal code. Now, once we you know, gained language, We gained civilization. These quick judging habits didn't go away, and they haven't gone away today. We are still remarkably biased towards making snap judges towards other people. And our experiences as children and even as infants play a remarkable role in the way that our brain judges other people. For example, 
young children and infants who are exposed to faces from a variety of racial backgrounds show less neurological fear responses to people that look different than their parents. In other words, their brain is more likely to initially accept people from other races. Childhood, infanthood, isn't that wild? So yeah, judging people has been successful for us, evolutionarily speaking. However, when you grow to cities and nations and mechanized warfare and atom bombs and the power that humans have to inflict harm upon one another has escalated dramatically, uh, that judging doesn't seem to be quite as good a tool as it once was. I hope society is learning and, and global violence rates make me think we are to some degree, is learning to sort of moderate that judging impulse. Now, intuition is actually related uh, somewhat to judging and the fact that it's also a lower brain function. Your intuition is the quick thinking that presents itself to you emotionally, to your consciousness, that happens in your limbic system in the more ancient parts of your brain. And that part of your brain is dramatically more efficient in terms of energy usage and time than your neocortical thinking, your advanced human brain. Effectively, the older parts of your brain are still around because they can make quicker decisions with less energy. The problem with intuitive thinking uh, or, or limbic system thinking is it works best with known circumstances. Your limbic system is great at making that snap decision to grab the softball before it hits you in the nose. Your limbic system is great for saying, there's a bear, I'm going to run. I'm not going to contemplate the bear's mood or morality. I'm just going to get out of here. Your limbic system is great for people, predators, and prey. <laughs> it's really good at you know figuring out the emotional states of others and how they may respond, whether you might be able to eat this thing you're looking at or whether this thing might eat you. But your limbic system is terrible at particles and philosophy, all the advanced thinking that we do. Your limbic system is not good at, at weighing ethical consequences or forecasting the future. Uh, your limbic system's not even really good at language. All those things are in the neocortex and are more expensive to run. And so it's okay to tr trust your intuition, to consider it as part of your experience, especially when it's dealing with people. You don't want to make intuitive leaps necessarily about science or higher order thinking issues. You want to then engage your rational mind and, frankly, its ability to absorb information through language uh, because no one person can puzzle through science on their own. Both of these things have served us phenomenally well, and both of these things are also responsible for a tremendous degree of pain and suffering and conflict in human societies. When our gut tells us to do something that doesn't really measure up to our higher-ordered ethical considerations, it might be time to check your gut, especially when guns and bombs and police forces are involved. It's those cases, I think, that it's most important to rely on the higher brain to moderate our ancient and more base impulses. Hi, Science Mike. I am curious about the science behind shame. When Adam and Eve disobey God in the Genesis story, they become aware of their nakedness, which makes them feel ashamed, and their instinct is to hide. 
I feel pretty confident that shame doesn't come from God because when Adam and Eve hide in the garden, God doesn't distance himself from them. He acknowledges the natural consequences of their actions and instead of shaming them, he covers them. But where does shame come from? Is it a natural consequence of sinning against a higher order? Or is it something we feel when we go against our own conscience? Or is it something that our surrounding culture projects onto us when we, when we go against whatever is considered socially acceptable at the time? And what do you think about people who feel the need to hide even though they don't feel like they're doing anything wrong? like homosexuals who are in the closet, or couples in a committed relationship who are having sex but aren't married, or undercover doubters who still go to church and teach Sunday school and lead small groups. How should we respond to shame, and what does it look like to extend grace? Well, your question touches on two similar but neurologically distinct feelings. One is guilt, and the other is shame. Let's talk about the difference between guilt and shame before we dig into your questions. Guilt is moral feelings uh, based on what you've done. So you feel guilty when you feel like you've committed some undesirable or unethical or immoral behavior. That's guilt. Guilt's based on what you've done. Shame is feelings based on who you are, okay? Guilt is what you've done. Shame is who you are. I feel guilty if I stole a pencil. I feel shame if I think my identity is that of a thief. I'm just a worthless thief, and that's shame. And they do different things in the brain. We've, We've studied this. I've got great links if you're into really in-depth medical research in the show notes uh, on AskScienceMike.com for this answer. Uh, But guilt and shame uh, both involve your temporal lobe and your frontal lobe and your limbic system. But shame also uh, associates activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, that part of your brain that's also responsible for love and affection, perhaps because your shame is weighing the possibility that you could lose the love and affection of others uh, in conjunction with the limbic system. Guilt tends to show a stronger activation in the amygdala, the home of fear and anger in the brain. Now, interestingly enough, across cultures, men and women neurologically express guilt differently. Uh, Women's guilt response is associated with the temporal lobe entirely while men show more frontal lobe activation, which means men's guilt tends to be, neurologically speaking, a more analytical process, a a more weighing of what's wrong. Women's guilt tends to be a more uh, social identity-driven process, which is interesting that there, there really are measurable neurological differences in the way that men and women, again, across cultures, Uh, process guilt. Um, So when we kind of look at those questions, uh, if you were to feel like you sinned against a higher order, that would be guilt. And yes, uh, feeling like you've broken 
a transgression against any kind of social code, especially divine code, is is a nat- guilt and natural consequence. If you go against your own ethical standards, your own conscience, that would also be guilt. When culture puts something on you against what culture says is okay, it could be guilt or shame, depending on whether they're attacking the behavior or the identity. So if we think about gay people in the church, they are shamed in a lot of cases because they're told who they are is not right or not worthy, right? Uh, Now, some people say it's okay to be gay. It's just not okay to express gay attraction or it's not okay to have a gay relationship. And that starts to move the needle towards oppressive guilt instead of shame, although I think you're still talking to someone's identity in that circumstance. Same with unmarried couples. Unmarried couples, it tends to be more of a socially imposed guilt than shame because, of course, your your relationship is normal and natural and your desires are okay. It's just your behavior that's wrong, right? So that's the guilt lever. Um, doubters is going to be a mixture of guilt and shame um, because it's the question of who you are and what you're doing. And all of this stuff is really toxic. Guilt can be healthy. If you're genuinely doing something unethical, guilt is a useful mechanism to encourage you to change in limited doses. Too much guilt is debilitating. It drives depression. It drives anxiety. It destroys feelings of self-worth and ironically reduces your ability to uh, have willpower and make change. Chronic shame the same way. And this is important when we look at the origin of shame. Um, People who don't feel that they were fully loved by their mothers as infants and young children uh, develop a condition called basic shame where they're unable to actualize, neurologically speaking, into a full sense of self-worth. And these are people that are crippled for life. Uh, They're always going to struggle with anxiety and depression. It's not a death sentence, certainly. Uh, But basic shame is a very troubling psychological condition. And any of us can be pushed towards basic shame, uh, even if we were uh, uh, nurtured well as children, by constant feelings of shame. It's it's destructive to human life. Now, how do we respond? Well, uh, a researcher named Brene Brown, who's absolutely one of my favorite social researchers, She looked deeply into the topic of shame, and she found that the way to transcend shame is to be vulnerable. It's to stop trying to hide those things you're afraid of other people finding out about you. We hide things because we fear the loss of connection because we're social animals. But when we lean into that fear and accept it and then reveal to others our inadequacies, we become free from shame, and more able to connect to people with intimacy, more able to thrive, to defeat depression. And I've seen this in my own life. I hid being an atheist for a long time, and it was emotionally destructive. And then I uh, came back to God, and I was afraid to tell people how my beliefs were changing. But when I learned to reveal those things I was afraid to reveal, I found greater intimacy and love and connection to other people on the other side. And today, I'm very, very comfortable saying things that other people might not. And that's been very freeing for me. 
you know, I have no shame or the fact that I don't have a college degree, but host a science podcast. <laughs> it's just a thing, right? Uh, it's just another thing. And ironically, when you're the one who is open about your greatest weaknesses, it removes the ability for other people to put guilt and shame on you. Because what do you have to lose when you have nothing to hide? Our last question came from the email inbox, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. First off, thank you for all you do. For the first time in my life, I don't feel alone in my spiritual struggles. On to my question. I have always had issues with anxiety, specifically as it relates to big life changes, and also in terms of relationships. I was wondering if you could explain the science of anxiety, why it's so crippling, and also suggest some resources beyond therapy, since I already engage in that, like books, etc., that are helpful in understanding and overcoming anxiety. Thanks again, Lauren. Anxiety happens when chronic stress, ongoing stressors, overwhelm your brain and encourage your limbic system to be in a constant state of arousal. Now, the word arousal is so often used in sexual contexts that when I say that, people think I'm talking about sexual arousal, but I'm, I'm just talking about elevated activity in your brain, in the limbic system specifically. So you have your limbic system, your mammalian brain, kind of your rat brain, um, the inner parts of your brain. Then you have your neocortex, the, the human brain, the most human, the uniquely human part of your brain. And anxiety keeps your amygdala uh, and other parts of your limbic system in a constant state of activation. You're in an ongoing low-level flight-or-fight situation, and that is crippling. Now, I am not an especially anxious person on an ongoing basis. Like anybody else, sometimes get tough. I can have issues with anxiety, but ongoing anxiety is something I don't have personal experience with. Uh, so this is uh, going to be relatively academic, although I certainly uh, empathize with you. If you can imagine uh, our brains and our, our lives, our emotional capacity as a bucket, just being alive is stressful. You've got to find food. You've got to get shelter. Uh, you want to seek pleasure through human companionship and sex and uh, food pleasure. And you have all these impulses constantly driving you. And you're looking for those things. If you don't get them, that creates even more limbic system arousal. But for a normal person, you can imagine that this bucket is, you know, less than half full. And that means in your emotional bucket, you've got a lot of, a lot of room for more water. You can have a car wreck on the way home, a fender bender, and not freak out. You can have an argument with somebody and it won't upset you. Those things are just adding more water. Now, if you have your normal amount of water in your bucket and added stress every day, if you have really difficult job circumstances or uh, you've been fighting with your spouse a lot or you feel very lonely because you don't have a spouse and want one, um, suddenly you can imagine your bucket is more than half full. And that means you have less room for water. And that means something else can happen and put you into an anxious state. Anxiety can activate because your bucket is almost full. And this is describes people with very difficult life circumstances. Um, things like if you've lost a loved one or um, you have a sexless marriage 
or you feel like your life has no meaning, or you're not getting enough sleep chronically, uh, that you feel very uh, disempowered, that you don't have any influence over your own life. Uh, if you've got drugs and alcohol going on, or you, you feel like uh, your finances are in terrible shape, all these things can just add up and add up and put you into a state of chronic anxiety. And once you're in a state of chronic anxiety, there's no room left in your bucket. And that means any additional stress melts you down. You have a full-on breakdown, flight or flight, major reaction to things that other people in less anxious settings can cope with normally, which makes you feel weird, which makes you even more anxious. That's terrible. Now, believe it or not, like right now, I'm in that bucket more than half full space, which is not usual for me. I got a lot going on right now in this season of my life, and I've definitely felt myself on the edge of anxiety for the last few weeks. I've been taking some breaks from Twitter as a result because you know it's winding down, but I've still got you know a couple more months maybe of this uh, very intense time period in my life, and this is from just having so much on my plate. I love this show. I love talking to you guys. I love that are just podcasts. I love all the events I do. I love the work that I'm doing. Uh, but right now, it's just there's a lot all at once. And I'm, as part of the next answer, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I'm changing. Okay? So I'm doing too many things. That means I have a plan in the near future to do less. Right? I have not been getting enough sleep for weeks. And so I've made an intentional decision to get more. I'm going to make sure I'm getting at least eight hours of sleep every day, starting tonight as soon as I get done recording this podcast. Um, I've been cutting back on the amount of time I spend uh, on social media. Uh, other than when I launched the podcast, you guys have probably noticed I'm not around very much right now. That's because it's just another thing to track and take care of. So when you are in an anxious state, there's really just three things you can do. You can actually change your circumstances. You can take action to get more rest, to eliminate stressors. If you have a terrible job, try to find a better job. But what you're doing here is you're putting your health in front of the things you think you need are important. That's not your only option. You can also change the way you feel about yourself and your circumstances. Uh, and I use cognitive behavior therapy to do that. That's where I interrupt my own thoughts. Because if you have a constant like negative introspection and a worry about who you are, and a worry about how life is, that's a stressor. And so when I realize I'm doing that, I stop myself and say, no, that's not true. The, the cognitive behavior theory idea is that your thoughts can lead your emotions. Your emotions can lead your thoughts, but if you make a choice to think differently, your emotions will follow over time. And so when I start to freak out and think, I'm never going to get all these things done, I stop myself in my mind and I say, but you can get some things done and some things are better than nothing. And then I work on something and I have a phenomenal work output with nothing but that little CBT trick, right? Well, when I think, oh, you're going to run out of good ideas. How can you answer all these questions on your podcast every week? I say, there's no pressure to do anything, but give your best answer, right? There's no, there's no failure. All you can do is give your best answer. That's cognitive behavior therapy. Now, the third thing you can do to deal with anxiety is accept the things that can't be changed. I have to pay a mortgage or not have a house. I just accept that. 
I don't rail against it. I just roll with it. So we sort of think about three things. Again, change your circumstances, change the way you view yourself or your circumstances, and then accept the things that you cannot change. And all those things help you deal with anxiety. Now, you're doing a good thing seeing a therapist. I might talk to your therapist about cognitive behavior therapy if you have not already. That can be extraordinarily helpful in dealing with anxiety uh, and depression and, and other emotional issues that can be difficult to defeat. And also, listen, I found just a fantastic uh, webpage uh, by the anxiety specialists in the UK that summarizes some approaches to anxiety and some of the science behind it that really helped me even craft this answer. It's linked in the show notes at asksciencemike.com. Could be a good resource. Um, and I'll see if I can find a book on cognitive behavior therapy that I like to post there as well, um, because that could be helpful. And I'm sure if you specifically ask about cognitive behavior therapy with your therapist, he or she will have some resources for you as well. Anxiety's tough. It really is. Uh, I know people, I'm close to people who deal with chronic anxiety, and I understand how debilitating that it can be. So I would encourage you to do everything you can to take care of yourself. Worry about yourself right now and uh, return to a place where your bucket is not so full. Another week, another episode of Ask Science Mike. Thanks for tuning in and listening. I Honestly, I, I'm amazed. Every week I look at the reports on the show and we have more listeners than the week before. <laughs> It's a popular podcast that ranks consistently in iTunes about science and faith questions. It's crazy. You guys are awesome. Uh, On podcast news specifically, uh, our most recent episode, I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of the show, of the Liturgist podcast. It's another show I do with a friend of mine named Michael Gunger. We just did our 20th episode of that, and uh, it's on LGBTQ equality and the church. Don Miller came on, brought his friend JJ, Matthew Vines joined us, um, Stan Mitchell and Melissa Green and one of their church members, Tabitha, from Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee, came on the show. Uh, Ed Gunger joined us. It's an absolutely phenomenal episode. It is the most downloaded thing I've ever been a part of, except maybe you made it weird with Pete Holmes. Uh, but uh, it's probably going to end up in that uh, in that ballpark if the downloads keep going like they are. I don't care what you think about marriage equality. You owe it to yourself to check out that episode. There are some amazing stories and perspective, which can be found at theliturgist.com slash podcast. Speaking of the liturgist, we're going to be in Atlanta for an event called Belong uh, that we're putting on for just 100 people. We've sold out uh, most of the tickets, but there are a handful left, so you can join us if you go to liturgist.com slash belong and grab a ticket. We're also going to be at the Wild Goose Festival this year. Uh, both the Liturgist is going to be there, and I'll be there doing a talk on the science of peacemaking. And actually, for the rest of the year, I've got a pretty decent number of events lined up and more being added all the time. If you go to mikemccarg.com slash events or just go to asksciencemike.com and click on events, Uh, you can see where you might be able to catch me in person. I would love to see you. Uh, Keep your questions coming. Everybody is going to AskScienceMike.com and dropping questions there. Very few questions 
coming in via hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. That's fine. The quality is really consistent and good. Um, you guys, really, it's a challenge to pick the questions on the show. There are so many good ones. And our show is also listener-supported. If you want to be a part of helping this conversation continue, feel free to go to the website, click on the Patreon link, and you can donate money to help the show keep going. Every single dollar helps. There's a lot of people that give $1 a month, and I appreciate it. Uh, You can cancel or change a pledge at any time. So if you come in and give $20 a month, you figure out you can't afford $20. That's okay. Cut to one. Cut to zero. You know. Take care of yourself before me every day of the week. But man, do I appreciate all the people who help make the show possible. It does take a lot of time for multiple people to do the show. There are a lot of expenses, hard expenses to keeping the program uh, running in terms of the technology, the web hosting and blah, 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 blah. I couldn't keep it going without your help. So I I do want to thank you, all of you people who contribute. And thanks to everybody who's rating the show on iTunes and sharing the show on Twitter and Facebook. I know I sound like a broken record saying thank you all the time, but I am genuinely, constantly amazed how much you guys do to make the show successful. I'm speechless every week. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to stop thanking you. I don't want you to get tired of hearing me say thank you either. But it, it's incredible. I mean, the iTunes ratings—they're beautiful and kind. Um, and help people find the show. And of course, our show is produced by my dear friend Greg Nordine. It's a thankless job, but uh, I'm going to thank him anyway. And our theme song is by Jeff Modiford. Uh, if you're doing a podcast, if you're doing any sort of production, you need original music recorded, produced. Uh, he's your guy. He can make it happen. Uh, you can learn more about Greg and Jeff and get resources for every single question asked on the show at AskScienceMike.com. Say it with me now. Ask science uh, Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll see you next week.